Welcome to Before the Ballot, a podcast series designated to educate voters before they cast their ballots this November. I'm your host, Elizabeth Donahue, and joining me today to discuss climate change policy is Michael Oppenheimer. Michael is the Albert G. Milbank Professor of Geosciences and International Affairs at Princeton University. He's the director of the Center for Policy Research on Energy and the Environment and serves as a science advisor to the Environmental Defense Fund. He's a longtime participant in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. His research focuses on natural sciences and the policy aspects of climate change. Michael, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So climate change has played a much larger role, it seems, in the 2020 election than ever before, particularly in the Democratic primary. With the onset of COVID-19, priorities clearly have changed since the beginning of the primary season. What are we currently seeing in terms of climate change, campaigning, and policy? The the activism which pushed climate change to uh, share the top of the policy agenda for maybe uh, the year before COVID struck uh, is still there. And the activists, particularly in the Democratic Party, uh, have been pushing uh, Joe Biden to the left on a whole set of issues, and climate is is a key one. So, I, and I think to the people on the uh, progressive end of the Democratic Party that the the idea is that these things are not separable. So, for instance, environmental justice, climate change, equity in general in society are issues that the progressive end of the spectrum views as intimately connected to each other and that you can't completely solve one without solving the other. So we've gotten far enough so that these things aren't going to be disconnected. And should Joe Biden get elected president, he will have, uh, you know, he'll have to essentially uh, pay up on promises that he's made. That's the way politics works. And he's made some very significant promises on the climate front. So it's not likely he can separate that off and say, I've got to do infrastructure first. I've got to do COVID first. The questions around equity, fairness, and who gets hurt the most by these big phenomena that go on in our society just can't be separated. So it sounds like you're saying that, in fact, COVID might be opening up an opportunity for climate change policies. For example, as I understand it, several Democratic lawmakers have hoped to tie environmental funding to the most recent COVID-19 relief bill. Do you think that's the case? Well, first of all, I think it would be a risky proposition to allow uh, a, a problem like climate change to lean too much on a complete disaster like uh, that the U.S. finds itself in in the COVID situation. We don't know what the future of COVID is going to be. We don't know really enough of it uh, about it to know whether it's going to return and if so, in, in what strength and wh- or whether there really will be a vaccine uh, some months from now or really whether that's a pipe dream and there really isn't going to be a vaccine for years or even decades. Yet we know climate change is happening. We know it's there. We know it's going to be there until we make significant deep reductions in greenhouse gas emissions and get become less dependent and ultimately independent of fossil fuels. And we also know that we're, some climate change is inevitable uh, because of emissions in the past. 
and that we have to take actions to protect ourselves. So climate change has to be dealt with anyway. If in the process of dealing with COVID, there are ways to deal with it that reduce the climate problem, and there are other ways which make the climate problem worse, and you have a choice to make, and I think there are such choices that will have to be made, you obviously, if you want climate change fixed, you go with the uh, with the policies that will address both COVID and climate change. But COVID could be more or less gone as a political issue two years from now, but climate is going to be there. Yes, I, I totally agree. So could you give some examples? You said you um, there are examples. Could you give some concrete examples? Yeah, sure. Uh, people uh, know, everybody knows that emissions went down uh, as people were uh, telecommuting instead of going to work, as people were going out and uh, less and, you know, going to restaurants or movies or whatever people do for fun and less. And that's a transient phenomenon. It's not going to last. As the economy gears back up, we'll, we will if we don't uh, take actions to, uh, to uh, make things go in a different direction. We'll wind up back where we were. In fact, we could wind up worse as governments feed money into enhancing the, their economies as they pump their economies up. If they do that in the usual way, it could wind up with let's build more coal-burning power plants, let's build more highways and encourage more car use. Or alternatively, the governments could say, wait a minute, here's a chance to develop smart highways, which can use low-emission electric vehicles. Here's a way to develop um, uh, renewable energy instead of encouraging coal. Here's a way to invest, and this is a key one, in a national grid system that actually is a smart grid and is compatible with renewable energy and can reduce emissions significantly in the future. So we can look at the future and uh, as we come out of COVID and try to build the economy coming out of COVID as being a choice between more of the same and maybe even worse. And number two, um, going toward a greener economy. And that's what the Green New Deal is about. So speaking of which, could you speak a little bit about the Green New Deal? Because really prior to COVID, that was the you know, seem to be the way people were talking about a lot of these environmental issues. So could you unpack the Green New Deal a little bit for us and talk about how you see that playing out in the upcoming election? The, the Green New Deal, which was has obviously gotten tremendous traction in the Democratic Party and some other quarters, and which is the centerpiece now explicitly or implicitly of Biden's um, uh, climate change initiative, uh, really combines the various aspects of reducing emissions, uh, imp- uh, rebuilding America's infrastructure, addressing equity, particularly the imbalance in the economy uh, between uh, high-income workers and workers at the lower end of the income spectrum, and finding ways to do that so that we build new job opportunities as we build a greener economy. And there are you know, var- various ways that this is approached uh, in the uh, various proposals. They're not all the same. Uh, but in the end, what happens is that the idea of fixing climate change is firmly attached to the idea of making the U.S. 
economy in particular more equitable and finding ways to build jobs that are accessible to people who may not have PhDs, for instance, and at the same time, help clean up the environment. This is not a new idea, by the way. The idea of employment, employing people to do weatherization is one that's been around for a long time. That reduces energy use in homes, for instance. The idea of building a new grid uh, doesn't require all entirely high-skilled workers. It requires a mix of skills. So those are the kinds of ideas which bring several of these problems that the U.S. society is faced with, especially the big gap in income between the 1% and, let's say, the you know people in the lower half of the income spectrum, and, the, and it's a growing gap. These are, these are approaches which can help clean up the environment while putting the economy on a more stable footing and resolving this looming conflict. And it's not looming, it's there. In, in the U.S. political economy. So, so, of course, you know, climate and environmental issues aren't just U.S. issues. So beyond these domestic issues that you've been talking about, what do you think the United States needs to do in terms of accomplishing internationally um, change on climate change? And how could American leaders spearhead this issue were there to be a change in administration in the coming election? I am sure that if there were a change in administration, that the Biden administration would rejoin the Paris Agreement, would be welcomed with open arms, and the U.S. could resume a leadership role, if with an eye of some skepticism upon the U.S. by other countries, and it's well justified at this point. So uh, the U.S. will have to do more than just mouth uh, you know, mouth the words of international cooperation in fixing the problem. The U.S. will a have to actually take steps to fix the problem here at home, and b work to to uh, to develop later stages of the Paris process, so that other countries that you know may not have the resources or the political capability at the current time can look to a future where they'll also be able to play a significant role in cutting emissions. Back in 2014, the Obama administration reached an agreement with the Chinese government to mutually an accord, a bilateral accord, to cut emissions of the greenhouse gases by both countries. It was that agreement which was the key that unlocked the Paris Accord. So if we can think about doing that again, it may not be with China. China may be somewhere else. Uh, in terms of their attitude on climate. I don't think they will be, but, uh, you know, we can't be sure. There are, you know, 190-some-odd other countries in the world, many of whom can be in their own spheres quite influential in getting their other nations that are, you know, circulate in the same orbit to reduce their emissions. Germany is very powerful. The UK remains potent. Uh, Brazil if it got its own political house in order, could also be a big influence in parts of the developing world, as obviously could India. So there are lots of, of countries for the U.S. to collaborate with. What's missing is the U.S. So working off of that, it does seem, I mean, it's been very clear that President Trump um, has not wanted to go down the path of working internationally by, you know, as you mentioned, withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement, but also cutting energy regulations on oil and gas in this country. 
And I wonder if this is a new stance for the Republican Party or has has been has this sort of divisiveness over the environment and climate been there even prior to President Trump? Well, it's it, it, it's been in parts of the party for a long time. But look, it's been in parts of the Democratic Party for a long time, too. There were always Democrats who, for instance, represented uh, fossil fuel states uh, or petrochemical states, states like Louisiana, Ohio, Kentucky, where the politicians had forces pulling them in both directions. So this wasn't a partisan issue so much. There were, you might say, good guys and bad guys from an environmental point of view in both parties. But what happened in the early 1990s is uh, Newt Gingrich decided to go to war against the environment and to some extent against science. And that helped. I don't know. I don't want to say what the cause and effect was because it's never clear. But Newt Gingrich and and the Gingrich Congress and the Contract for America started, which was his platform as he pushed to be speaker, pushed uh, the U.S. U.S. politics in the direction of extreme polarization over environmental issues. And you could say that, the, that a lot of that started back in the Reagan administration, but even the Reagan administration uh, had a certain rationality about climate issues. That, you know, they, they weren't totally immune to scientific arguments. They were took some leadership in terms of getting uh, ozone depletion taken care of. The Bush administration took some leadership in getting the acid rain problem on a road to being fixed. There's sort of two issues, it seems, politically. One is, is the science of climate change um, accepted by all? And the second part is, if it was, if we could get past the point where there's skepticism about the science and everyone accepted it, would there still be a difference do you think in how Republicans came at climate change versus Democrats in terms of policy? Don't expect skepticism about the science to ever disappear. It will be credible and more uh, risky for them to use, for that side to use as a weapon. They got to be careful or else they become totally non-credible. So in the Republican position has varied from uh, there's too much uncertainty to more recent to more recently. Yes. Yes. More recently than that. Yes. Yes, yes, it's a problem, but we'll have to learn how to adapt to it because it's, we don't know if humans are really playing a role. So, yeah, humans are playing a role, uh, but, uh, you know, let's be careful economically about how we reduce emissions. And that often translates into let's funnel a lot of money into new technologies, which is, is a good idea anyway if, you, if, the, if the money is well spent. Uh, but staying away from regulatory approaches, that is either market-based regulatory approaches like a tax on carbon or cap and trade, which provide a direct incentive to reduce emissions, or the hammer of ironclad regulatory approaches of the sort we got in the uh, Obama administration when it became impossible to pass anything through Congress, which really uh, assured that as long as the regulations stayed in place and the government enforced them, that there would be emissions reduction. So Republicans are sort of drifting and they've gotten, and when I say they, there are too many Republicans to say it's everybody. It's, you can't say what the official position is because 
the president changes his mind all the time and says contradictory things. But those Republicans that do get engaged in the debate generally focus on subsidies for new technologies. But that's just not enough. You're never going to solve the problem that way unless you get extremely lucky. You have to combine subsidies or similar economic incentives with regulations of some sort, including uh, incentives like a carbon tax or a cap and trade system, because then the two work together and you get, you give a re, you know, you can develop all the technologies you want, but if there's no market to buy them, they're not going to penetrate. You have to give people a reason to buy them, even when they're a little more expensive than the alternatives. The good news is renewable energy has become cheaper than fossil fuels at a, a lot of places at a lot of times. And so we're well on the way. If we had a couple of centuries, we would solve the problem would solve itself. We don't have a couple of centuries. We have a few decades within which time we have to get our fossil fuel emissions way down. And that's not a lot of time. We have to get on to quickly. The only way to do that effectively that we know of is a combination of regulation, incentives, and money for to support technological development. So it sounds like you've been clear that this is an emergent need and we need to start doing things fast. On the other hand, some of the proposals you mentioned are quite long-term in terms of implementation. So I wondered if you could walk us through in terms of how you would advise an incoming administration in terms of short-term goals and short-term policies that should be looked at, uh, and then what long-term things you would be putting in place. In the short term, I would return to a more vigorous form of what President Obama had begun to develop, which were uh, strong regulations on motor vehicles and on electric power plants that would have eventually pushed coal into a very small corner of the energy economy. But, you know, Trump came in, uh, he put in place new regulations, which are a diluted form of the ones that were in there uh, to begin with on the two big uh, parts, the uh, automotive part and the power plant part, as I recall, the automotive regulations are still uh, in, uh, in so there's some controversy, there's still there's litigation, which has held up their implementation, but the power plant regulations are going ahead. And by the way, I will note, despite the opposition of a good chunk of both the automotive and the electric utility industry, which had started to make investments to meet the Obama regulations, so they're not particularly happy. So what I would do with four years having been lost is realize we have to do it faster than President Obama thought we needed to do it and really start a more aggressive regulatory program while at the same time putting the political ducks in order to get a comprehensive approach to greenhouse gas emissions, emissions through the Congress. So the Green New Deal can be accomplished based on regulation. But in the long term, the whole effort will be easier and less expensive if we can regulate a comprehensive approach to greenhouse gases. And then you combine the regulatory and the um, and the incentive-based approaches like a carbon, a price on carbon, as it's called, a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade system, which put an effective price on carbon. And through that combination, you can get a fast change in greenhouse gas emissions, with which eventually is stringent enough with the stringency on the carbon tax or on the uh, or on the cap, uh, going getting tighter and tighter over time, and pushing the U.S. towards lower and lower emissions. 
if you don't have that regulatory piece up front, you don't have the juice for essentially uh, combining it with some of the other elements which the Green New Deal is trying to accomplish because you don't have the, the government in there trying to make sure that things are done in, a, in an economically and socially equitable fashion and you lose political support for it in that way. And three, four years from, uh, you know, from January 20, uh, 2021, we might wind up back in the same place that we are now. So you want a long-term robust solution which combines a very fast action with a longer-term vision. In line with the name of the podcast, what is the most important point on climate change as voters make their decision before the ballot? The most important thing has always been the same. It's that carbon dioxide builds up in the atmosphere. We don't, at this point, have a way to artificially remove it from the atmosphere, although scientists are trying to develop such approaches. Uh, It can be done. It's just, at this point, still too expensive. Uh, we, uh, as we therefore think about further the, our further future emissions trajectory, you have to realize every ton, every pound of carbon dioxide you put up stays there for a long time. And some of the carbon dioxide we're emitting today will still be there a thousand years or more from now. So these, these problems are effectively irreversible. And that means you have to get on it right away and prevent as much carbon from going up in the atmosphere as possible. Because eventually, while you're sitting around thinking about how to do it, you get to the point where the, the what you might call a climate danger zone, a warming of one and a half or two degrees Celsius, which is you know, roughly uh, three or four degrees Fahrenheit uh, above pre-industrial levels, becomes inevitable. We're already about one degree Celsius, 1.8 degree Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. We don't have a lot of headroom. That's why rapid action is, you know, is absolutely necessary if we're going to avoid those that region of climate danger, which is somewhere around or above two degrees Celsius or about four degrees Fahrenheit warming. Now, if we go past out of the day, if we don't make it this time and we wind up in the danger zone, that doesn't mean we quit because things are always going to just get worse until we really lasso the problem and tie it to the ground. And that means we have to do as best we can, not just on emissions reduction, but also a strong national adaptation policy to protect people from the changes due to a change in climate, the impacts from a change in climate. For instance, the U.S. doesn't have a national flood protection program that actually does any does much in advance to allow people to spend money and to funnel money to governments to protect themselves from, for instance, coastal flooding. We have a program, but the way it's designed encourages more settlement along the coast. We have to get, dig into those policies that are doing damage uh, redesign them, put in new policies, and provide the money that allow people and local and state governments to protect the people that live there. So those are the two things, radically rapid emissions reduction, and for the first time, a national adaptation program. Well, Michael, this has been really interesting. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure to be here, Elizabeth. Let's do it again sometime. Go to vote.gov to register to vote in this year's election. You've been listening to Before the Ballot. This show is produced by me, Henry Barrett, with the assistance of Rose Huber. 
This podcast is intended to be informational only. It does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs.